0: Well, as Sam mentioned earlier, it's a unique Sunday. There's none of the staff elders here, so you get what you get. (laughs) For those of you that don't know me, my name's Wes Burgess. I am one of the lay elders here, and it's a joy to bring the word to you this morning. I I will warn you, I'm, I'm not a trained preacher. I'm an architect, so... If this goes really bad, you can remember later, oh yeah, he did tell us he was an architect, not a trained preacher. So, But this morning, um, hopefully it won't go really bad. And, and really, if you think about it, a sermon that's bad is not necessarily a sermon that's unpolished or clunky. It's a sermon that doesn't bring out what the Word of God really truly has to say. So even if my presentation this morning is unpolished and bad, prayerfully we'll still hear from the Word of God because that's where the power is. So uh, this morning we'll be looking at Psalm 22. So if you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, there's one provided in the seat back in front of you. And Psalm 22 you'll find on page 457. So while you're turning there, uh, I want to start with a quick story. I mentioned I was an architect, and back in the late 90s, uh, I was working for an architecture firm that was part of the team that was doing an expansion to Razorback Stadium, and so if you recall that project, it was it was a tight uh, time frame, had to get open before football season, and part of the project was the construction of a new upper deck on the east side, and that deck was going to be supported on a foundation system called a Drilled Pier Foundation, and what that is... Is it's a series of holes about 25 to 30 feet deep, about three or four feet wide. They drill them into the ground and then they fill those holes up with concrete and reinforcing steel, and, and that supports the structure. And so, as they were drilling those holes under a, a big deadline, uh, there was a, as you can imagine, it was busy on the site, it was frantic, a lot of equipment, um, and the process was as they would drill these holes. Then they would tie together these reinforcing steel cages and pick those up with a crane and drop them down into the hole and then come right behind and fill those up with concrete. So they were just marching down the line uh, doing this work. Uh, There was a lot of people on site. It was loud. The crane was running, a lot of other uh, construction equipment as well. And while this was going on, unnoticed by anybody, a construction worker got too close to one of the holes and fell in. Uh, and so there he is in the bottom of this hole. And he knows that here comes the, the steel's coming, the crane's coming, the concrete's coming. And, and all he can do is cry out for help. And, and so as you would imagine, that's exactly what he began to do. Cry out for help at the top of his lungs that somebody would save him out of this hole and out of certain death. When these materials would be dropped in there and thankfully for whatever reason nobody really knows but the crane decided to shut down and as there was a momentary quiet on the site they heard the distant cries of this construction worker and they were able to locate him and pull him out of that hole but put yourself in that construction workers position for just imagine for just a moment Imagine the desperation and the anguish. You know that death is imminent if no one hears your cries for help. You can hear the crane getting closer. You can hear them hooking up that steel cage of rebar. All you can do is cry out. You know there's people there that could save you, but they can't hear you. Apparently, there is nothing that you can do, nothing that they can do, Um, and you cry out in desperation, and it doesn't seem like anybody is hearing you. Well, maybe you don't have to imagine that scenario. Maybe you have been or are currently in a situation where you're crying out for help, and for whatever reason you feel like no one can hear you. Maybe that cry is not physical, not literal, but perhaps it's a spiritual cry. Maybe you're crying out to God Um, for rescue and relief, and it just doesn't seem like he hears you. It just doesn't seem like any help is coming. Well, if that's you this morning, know that you're not alone. That's the same place that the author of our psalm, David, King David, found himself in some 3,000 years ago. And I pray that what he wrote down and what the Lord has preserved for us all these centuries that you will find helpful this morning. So let's turn to the psalm and let's read it together. Psalm 22. To the choir master, according to the Doe of the Dawn, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? O oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet, I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me, they divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots." But you, O Lord, do not be far off. You, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All your offspring of Jacob, glorify him. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation." They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Well, the main idea that we want to explore in this psalm this morning is this. Psalm 22 depicts the anguish of one who suffers unjustly. And the whole of scripture shows us that this unjust sufferer is actually Jesus. And it is through Jesus' unjust suffering that just sufferers are rescued. Let me say that one more time. Psalms 22 depicts the anguish of one who suffers unjustly. And the whole of scripture shows us that this unjust sufferer is actually Jesus. And it is through Jesus' unjust suffering that just sufferers are rescued. So that will serve as our outline this morning if you're a note taker. um, Point one will be the anguish of unjust suffering. Point two, Jesus is the unjust sufferer. And point three, just sufferers are rescued as a result. And then we will seek to make some application as we close. So let's look first at the anguish of unjust suffering, which is found uh, really in verses 1 through 21. We know that David wrote this psalm, but we don't really know what the circumstances were that led to its writing. David suffered much in his life, Sometimes that suffering was a result of sin in his life. He brought it upon himself. Um, We would call this just suffering. So it was just that he might suffer for his sin. And at other times, there is no immediate reason that's obvious for the suffering that that David experienced. So, for example, we know that Saul spent years hunting down David and trying to kill him. and, And he suffered as a result. Later in David's life, his son Absalom uh, attempted a coup against him, uh, suffering again. And and as you think of those two types of suffering, so just and unjust suffering, the Bible makes a distinction between the two. Uh, And we would do well to evaluate any suffering that we might uh, be enduring in light of what Scripture says. So for example, 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 19 to 21 say this. So did you hear that, the the distinction between the two types of suffering there? There's no credit for suffering for sin, but unjust suffering is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Uh, So something to consider this morning. If if you're finding yourself in the midst of suffering today, uh, it's good to ask yourself honestly if the suffering that you're going through could perhaps be a result of sin. Sin has consequences, and there's no honor in suffering as a result of the consequences of your sin. You know, as I noted, David suffered often for his sin. Um, And again, if you think about it, the the relationship, the adulterous relationship he had with Bathsheba, as a result of that, that child that was born died, and uh, it grieved David greatly. When you think later in David's life, he defied God's command and decided to take a census of the people of Israel, and God disciplined him for that. So there was suffering involved in those things that David brought on himself due to his sin. But as we look at Psalm 22 this morning, I don't think that the suffering that David is describing was a direct result of his sin. And and the reason I say that is really because we see a pattern in Scripture that whenever David sinned, he was always moved to repentance. And we don't see that in Psalm 22. We don't see David turning from the suffering of his sin to repent before the Lord. And so I think we can say safely that the suffering that is described in Psalm 22, even though we don't know what the circumstances were, were the type of unjust suffering uh, not due to something that David had done. And so um, if we look at that then uh, and we think, well, suffering that is due to my sin uh, re- deserves repentance, and I would encourage that to be something you evaluate and then come to repentance if that's the case. But if that's not the case, if your, son, if your sin does not appear to be the cause of suffering, um, if the suffering you're going through does not appear to be directly related to anything that you think you've done, at least that you can tell, then uh, let's see what we should do. What, what can we do? Uh, Well, let's look again here at the psalm. Look at verse 1 and 2. Listen to the suffering that David's going through here. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Have you ever felt this way? Abandoned by God, all alone, crying out in anguish. Like our construction worker in the bottom of that pit. If so, I think we want to pay close attention to exactly how it is that David cries out in his psalm here. He, just, he doesn't just cry out to the air. He doesn't cry out in general. Uh, we don't find him crying out to others about God. We don't find him complaining about God. But instead, we find him crying out to God in the midst of his suffering. He doesn't blame God. He goes to him. And look at how this progresses. Uh, David starts with his complaint here in verses 1 and 2. He feels forsaken and abandoned by God. He's crying out without ceasing day and night, without answer, without rest. But then for a moment, he takes his eyes off of his circumstances and considers what he knows about God. Look at verse 3. Yet you are holy enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. You know, God is not like us. He's holy, he's worthy of praise. God's history is one of faithfulness. God has always provided for his people and he has always rescued them when they have cried out. When Israel was in slavery in Egypt, they cried out to God and he sent a deliverer to rescue them. When they were in the wilderness and they lacked food and water, they cried out to God and he provided the sustenance they needed. Whenever they were attacked by hostile enemies and they cried out, God brought them relief either uh, by way of empowering them to defeat those superior enemies or just taking care of it himself and defeating them without their help. And so I think it's important to see that God, uh, that David is helped by looking back and seeing the faithfulness of God in history. And I ask you, is that something that you do? If You find yourself struggling in life, do you take time to look back at God's history? What is his character and what is his track record? Well as David does this, um, it seems perhaps that this reflection on God's faithfulness and how God always delivers his people uh, causes David to wonder, well, why isn't God delivering me then? And perhaps um, he comes to the realization, or the thought process at least, that he's actually not worthy of a holy God's deliverance. Look there at verse 6. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people, All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Do you catch David's logic here? He says, God always rescues his people. God's not rescuing me. I must be less than a person. I must be actually just a worm. And David then turns his focus back to his circumstances. He's being scorned, he's being despised by people, mocked and derided. Uh, Note the content of this mocking. The people are mocking him because of his faith. Again, it says in verse 8, you hear them mocking, He trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him, let him rescue him, for he delights in him. You know, this is truly salt in the wound, is it not? David is feeling abandoned by God, he's crying out, he doesn't think that God hears him. And now people are piling on. People are uh, mocking him because of the hope that he still has. You know, this is, this is tough. Um, this is difficult. Uh, but I think we can, again, uh, see something in this and find some instruction from the way that, God, that David works through this. You know, it is really through David's recognition of his unworthiness that he's able to again turn his attention to God but what about us Um, do we do this when we find ourselves being derided mocked when we find ourselves in suffering um, and when we see that we feel like we don't deserve this suffering you know are we like David here and say I'm a worm and not a man or is our tendency to be more the opposite and saying actually no I'm not a worm I'm a man I deserve better, I'm a good person, so God owes me comfort and ease. You know, if we take that attitude when we are suffering, when things don't go our way, it almost always leads to bitterness and anger. So when we look at David here and we see that in him confessing his unworthiness, he's able to turn his focus again back to God's character, we should be encouraged. And look how he does that again here in verse 9. Yet, you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help." You know, David understands here it's not just Israel's history that shows God to be faithful. It's actually his own personal history where he can see God's faithfulness as well. Um, he, looks back at his own life and recognizes who God is. It was God who brought David forth, um, as he says here, and has cared for him ever since. You know, David's faith is not something that he had to muster up. As it says there, uh, God graciously gave him his faith. You made me to trust you. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. So he's reminded once again of God's righteous and faithful character, Um, And so he prays, do not be far from me for trouble is near and there is no one to help. So again, I would ask you, I would ask you to reflect as you're in difficult times. Do you take the time to look back and see how God has been faithful in your life, how he has brought you through trial in the past and how he has pointed you in the right direction? Well, David's words as he is in anguish are really a model for us. He doesn't deny or ignore the reality of suffering. That's clear. We can see that here. But at the same time, he does not abandon truth. As we we look here at verses 12 through 18, these verses are particularly excruciating. Listen to this trouble that David describes. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones." They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. You know, this is true anguish. Physical, emotional, spiritual suffering. And all of it experienced completely alone, at least in David's mind. It felt like God was absent. But the truth is, is that he was actually there all along. We'll see that here in a minute. David understands this by reflecting, first of all, on God's historical past and his faithfulness to his people. And then his personal faithfulness to David. Um, And then this fuels his faith in God's ongoing and future faithfulness. Do you see how those things go together? Note the change from request to certainty in verse 21. So he changes from crying out for God to help him to the faith and the trust in knowing that God will. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. You know, I think we all have to realize from time to time that life in this fallen world often requires us to hold in tension what we feel on one hand and what we know. To be true on the other hand. The anguish that David was experiencing was real. But the feeling of being abandoned by God was actually not true. It felt like God was absent. But the truth was that he was actually there all along. And so uh, David is going to come to the realization of this. But in the meantime uh, what is going to hold, carry the day for him? The feeling of anguish or the truth of knowing that God is there? And so as he gets to this point in the, in the text where he makes this transition from requesting God to rescue him to the certainty that actually God has rescued him, um, I think it's a good reminder for us once again of how important it is that we spend time in the word, particularly when we don't feel like it, when we feel like everything is coming down on our shoulders that's the time in particular that we need to go back and look at the truth of what we know and the truth of what God has told us in Scripture. And so as we see David go through suffering and cry out in anguish and we see him start with the feeling of abandonment but end with comfort, we may wonder how he can be so confident. How does David know that just because God rescued his people in the past that he will do it again And I think the answer to this question is found in our second point here this morning. And while it's true that David suffered and felt the anguish described in these verses, ultimately what he knew and what we need to understand as well is that Jesus is actually the unjust sufferer that's being described in this psalm. And that's point two, Jesus is the unjust sufferer. Well, how do we know that this is true? How do we know That this psalm, written a thousand years before Christ's time, is actually about Christ. Well, we know it because the rest of Scripture tells us that it is true. But how did David know that? You know, we can't be certain as to how he knew that. But um, listen to what Acts chapter 2, verses 25 to 32 says. This is Peter preaching his sermon at Pentecost. And he says this, For David says concerning him, meaning concerning Jesus, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And then Peter says this, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, So Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, gives us insight into David's thought process, even back in the Psalms. David was a prophet, we are told, and he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. We are told that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. And that's a reference to 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God makes a covenant with David and promises that he will have offspring to sit on the throne of his kingdom forever, And so as David goes through suffering, his hope was not ultimately in God delivering him from suffering in the moment. His hope was in the Christ whose suffering would deliver him for all eternity. And this needs to be our hope as well. Look at the psalm again, and this time with Jesus in mind instead of David. Did you hear how remarkably similar this passage is? to the account of Jesus' crucifixion that Emily read earlier from Matthew 27, the mocking and the wagging of heads by the religious leaders, the agony, the thirst, the piercing of hand and foot, the dividing of his garments and casting lots, the very words spoken by Jesus as he hung there, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? David truly was a prophet because we don't have anywhere recorded that any of these events physically, literally, occurred in his life. But we have recorded in all four Gospels a thousand years later that these things were literally fulfilled in Christ. Uh, And so this should bolster our confidence in the Word. Um, What was written down came to pass. And as we get to the end of the psalm, we understand that God never truly actually forsook David but he did forsake Christ as he turned his face away from him on the cross. And fellowship was broken between the Father and the Son for that uh, very first time. We'll look back again at verse 6. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. You know, as we hear Christ uh, as the one speaking those words, it's interesting to think back and to realize that I am is the name that God ascribed to himself. First of all, when uh, Moses asked him, well, who should I tell the people sent me? And God says, tell them I am sent you. And then in John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus takes that same name for himself. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And as Charles Spurgeon notes, what a contrast we have here between I am and I am a worm. It's interesting that the Hebrew word for worm here is tola oth, which was a grub that when crushed produced a crimson fluid that was used to dye fabric red. And it was the grub that was used to dye the threads red in the tabernacle. And I think when we think about that picture, we get a hint about what this is all about. And that really is our third point. Just sufferers are rescued as the result of the unjust suffering of Jesus. Now, we want to be careful when we declare that Jesus' suffering was unjust. And what we mean by that plainly is that Jesus did not suffer for his own sin. He had done no wrong that warranted the intense suffering and death that he experienced. But we need to be careful to stop short of declaring an an injustice was done by God in this, in Jesus' death. You see, as David looked forward to the Christ from a thousand years previous, uh, and so did the prophet Isaiah 300 years after David, but still 700 years before Jesus. When we read in the familiar passage of Isaiah 53, he was wounded for all our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his stripes we are healed all we like sheep have gone astray we have turned every one to his own way and the lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all you see the purpose the intentionality and the accomplishment brought about by jesus agonizing death on the cross and subsequent resurrection cannot be overstated. This is the central event of all of human history. And David and Isaiah and all of the Old Testament saints looked forward to this event. And now we look back to the very event, the very thing that was necessary and the only way that just sufferers could be rescued from just judgment. This act of suffering on Jesus' part was an act of love, God demonstrating his love in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This was necessary because each and every one of us are sinners, and by nature, we're children of wrath, carrying out the passions of the flesh, as we are told in Ephesians chapter 2. The wages of our sin is death. But for all who repent and place their faith in Christ's righteousness instead of their own, God, in love, poured out his wrath on Jesus instead of on me. What's more, he accepts Christ's perfect righteousness in my place, and he puts my wickedness on Jesus, and he puts Jesus's holiness on me. This is how just sufferers, those who deserve to suffer for their sin, are rescued. Um, It is by Christ's suffering in their place. And so in reality, this is not unjust because Jesus willingly went to the cross. Let me read again verses 22 through 31, and this time, hear it in the words of Jesus instead of the words of Davis, or I mean in the words of David. Verse 22: "I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord praise him." All of you, offspring of Jacob, glorify him, and stand in awe of him. All you, offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. For you, from you comes my praises in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Did you notice that last line there? He has done it. Does that not remind you of something else that Jesus said on the cross? It is finished. You may wonder how the outlook of this sufferer in Psalm 22 can change so dramatically from anguish and despair in the first part of the psalm. To the joy and celebration of these last verses and it's because of this transition in verse 21 you have rescued me which only comes about because jesus has done it it is finished the rescue that results is the result of christ's finished work on the cross there is no other rescue that is truly worthwhile you know isn't it interesting that we have no indication of the circumstances in which This psalm was written that David was moved to write. And we have no indication really that these circumstances changed during the course of the psalm. But what we do know is that Jesus truly accomplished all the work necessary to end all suffering. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 54. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of sin of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ." David was able to rejoice, not because of physical or emotional relief, but because of Christ's victory. And we are able to rejoice as well. Brothers and sisters, the hope of Psalm 22 is not that our earthly suffering would be relieved. We know that's not the case. We know that as long as we're in this fallen world, we will suffer, and eventually we will die. But do you see that our hope is not tied to that? Our hope is not tied to relief in the here and now. Our hope and our joy are tied to the fact that Jesus loves you, and he will never leave you or forsake you. This is a promise that has its fulfillment in eternity, not just in the here and now. Do you see how clearly this is revealed in verse 24? For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried out to him. You know, here once again, the truth is held up against the feelings that you may have when you suffer. As a follower in Christ, um, David again, back in verses 1 and 2, he felt like he had been abandoned by God. He was certain that God had forsaken him. But in verse 24, it turns out that God actually was there all along. God did hear his cries. He has not despised or abhorred his affliction. And he has not hidden his face from him. It's the same for us. If we find ourselves in suffering, God hears, God cares, and God's love is demonstrated to us in the fact that Christ died in our place. And notice as well the context of this worship. You know, look at verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You know, uh, we're told in Hebrews 2 verse 12 that these are Jesus' words. He calls us brothers and he is in the midst of the congregation. In other words, he's present with us, not distant from us. Jesus delights in his church, and as those who he has rescued, we should delight in his church as well. This is all very corporate and plural, this joy that we're reading about. Um, It is in the great congregation. It is all the offspring of Jacob, and it is before those who fear him. And in fact, if you look at the superscript, the very beginning of the psalm, we find out that the purpose of this psalm was actually for corporate worship. It's titled, To the Choir Master. So this was to be used in praise and worship of the Lord corporately as the body assembled together. So you may wonder from time to time, why is it that we put so much emphasis around here on the church as being central to our walk with God? Well, it's because Jesus himself puts the emphasis there. Jesus is the one who built his church, we see in Matthew 16. And Jesus is the one who died for his church, as we see in Ephesians 5. And even here in Psalm 22, as he hung on the cross, his thoughts go to his church as he proclaims the glory of the Father. Well, let's conclude our time this morning with some application from the text. And first, I'd like to speak this morning to those of you who would not call yourself followers of Christ. Maybe you wandered in off the street this morning. Uh, Maybe somebody brought you. Maybe somebody guilted you to be here this morning. And, And I'd like to say, we're glad you're here. And also, I'd like to say, perhaps it's not an accident. The message of Psalm 22 is for you. The saving grace of Jesus' death and resurrection is your only hope, just as it is for every one of us. Look again at verse 26 through 29. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nation shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Do you hear how universal the truth of the gospel is in this passage? It's for all people, all nations, all families. And if we are to find the salvation from the penalty of sin, it will only be found in Christ's work. And that is true for everyone. Notice there in verse 29 the reference to the one who could not keep himself alive. That again is a description of all of us. There is not one person who can stand and keep himself alive before a holy God. We are all sinners. We are all guilty under the penalty of death. We need the life of Jesus applied to our account in order to find repentance and faith and in order to live. But what a great promise we have there in verse 26. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. The afflicted shall be satisfied. There is no affliction that can keep us in suffering if we will seek the Lord. And there is no one who truly seeks him who will not be found by him and praise the Lord. And the one who is found by him and praises him, his heart will live forever, it says here. You know, if you don't know Christ, but if you would like to know more about this saving gospel... Uh, then I encourage you to talk to somebody about it uh, after the service. Maybe the one who brought you, maybe one of the elders or one of the members of UBC who will be around. They would be happy to explain the gospel more fully. Well, now for those of you who do claim the name of Christ, three quick things to consider as we wrap up. First, take David's example in suffering to heart as you perhaps will suffer Suffering is a God-ordained opportunity to grow in your understanding of God, of who he is, and of how much he loves you. So just as David began this psalm focused on his anguish and his suffering, but ended it with his faith strengthened, you likewise would do well to recognize that you are not at the center of your story. Jesus is. Our suffering is a way for God to remind us of his past faithfulness and his future promises. Jesus died on the cross so that you didn't have to, and that realization should fuel our worship. Second, consider once again the corporate nature of Christian life. We need to be actively in the congregation because that's where Jesus is. Do you love the church like Jesus loves the church? Do you long to tell of his name to your brothers in the midst of the congregation? Are you eager to stand in awe of him along with the other offspring of Israel? Is this your concept of the church? All of those who have coveted together uh, for his glory? Or are you only interested in a segment of the church, a subset of the church, those who you have something in common with in addition to salvation in Christ? My hope for all of us as members of UBC is that we would be able to cultivate a love for one another that reflects the sacrificial, life-giving love of our Savior. And finally, believer, look at these last two verses. Verse 30, Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Any application that comes from meditating on this psalm must include the mandate to tell of his righteousness to the world. His righteousness and his saving work must be told to the, to the coming generation, as it says here. So that would be those that you're raising up in your home and, and in the community. And also, it is those who are as yet spiritually unborn. Those in need of a spiritual rebirth. May we be those who proclaim the name of Christ because he has done it. He has done everything for us to bring us from death to life. And from darkness to light. God has not forsaken us. He has rescued us from our just suffering. Let's pray. Lord, as we reflect on your word and the truth that we will suffer, maybe we be turned to the even greater truth that you have done the suffering in our place to pay the pen. The penalty for the sin that we deserve to suffer for, Lord. May we worship you. May we be obedient to you. And and may, as we go out from this place, the truth of your word, may it overcome the feelings that we have uh, when we suffer, uh, when we recognize that um, we are suffering and we feel like we're crying out without anyone to hear, anyone to respond. May the truth of your word tell us differently. And may we find our joy in the fact that you suffered in our place and that you have done it. And all this we ask in Christ's name. Amen.